0: Hey folks, welcome to the Buckle Up podcast, the Millennial's Guide to the BRI. I'm your host, Enzo Kong. The focus of today's episode is the beautiful Balkan country, Albania. Albania is a founding member of the Belt and Road Initiative and actually goes way back with China as partners. My guest for the discussion today is Yadno Kasmi. Yetno is an Albanian researcher who studied at the Korean Development Institute School of Public Policy and Management, and has a keen interest in Asian politics, soft power diplomacy, and middle power diplomacy. Our conversation reveals that more work needs to be done locally in order for the BLI cooperation and investments to stake. We also talked about the prospects of Albania's EU accession, which might have a positive impact on business between Albania and foreign investors, including China. Finally, we explored how the Albanian youth can benefit from the Belt and Road Initiative and what we can do to engage them. no is super insightful. I myself have learned a lot from the episode. Please hit the subscribe button if you haven't already done so and enjoy the conversation. see you yet no how are you doing thank you very much thank
1: you for inviting me me in this it's a real good pleasure
0: it's a pleasure too um you know the thing about albania is that it might be one of the most beautiful country that we'll ever cover in this series (laughs) is is there a place you'd say i cannot miss if i have the good fortune to visit your country
1: Uh, well there is several nice uh, sites unfortunately we have more beachy areas to offer than mountain areas so depending on the individual's um, unique perspective but i'll say the southern riviera and the cities of saranda and dora which are the, let's say the prettiest and the most invested on due to their connectivity with greece and other major uh, roads the north is not so invested on and we'll hopefully uh, have the government do some more work on that but the south uh, is definitely better and are they close to where you live uh, I live in Tirana, and then the Vlora is about two to, three, two to three hours away, whereas Saranda is about four hours away, but uh, there are in, yeah. major infrastructure development, so it might be shorter.
0: Okay, well, um, I'm sure most of our audience would like to learn a bit more about um, the general politics of Albania before we jump into the, the main theme of our podcast, the Belt and Road Initiative. So. Currently, the Prime Minister of Albania is Eddie Rama, who is holding his office for the third time. And can you tell us a bit more about his politics? And it seems that EU accession would still remain on the agenda, is that correct?
1: Um, uh, Well, the uh, the EU accession is always the way forward as it is wanted by most of the Albanian society. And it has been promised by the uh, Albanian leaders since the fall of communism in the 1990s, Uh, regarding Edirama. honestly, um, uh, his politics are quite uh, closed. You know, he runs a tight ship and no one really knows what is going to happen today or tomorrow, despite the fact that we are supposed to be quite a decentralized government. Uh, the Prime Minister still holds a really tight grip on power, so to say, or political appointees. In that regard, I, that uh, worked in the government, at the ministry for about one year and a half, too, it was still difficult to distinguish on uh, what were the real policies and what we were doing. We were just, you know, the administration just does its work, but it's difficult to understand what the political side is, you know, and then one issue was more important than the other, depending on the political will or depending uh, on how fast the papers got pushed. Uh, regarding the third Ramad administration, I'll have to believe that well, uh, on his political campaign, he basically said, we won't change anything, we'll just continue as we are, so vote for us because it's going to be better than the others. You know, uh, it's kind of a self confidence a leader gets when they've got, when when they've stayed too much um, in power. They've got nothing more to promise, but um, uh, just a promise that they'll continue what they started, you know, not let them have their job uh, be cut in half, so to say. Uh, In regards to the EU accession, I'll I'll highlight again that it's still what the Albania people want. And it is still uh, the government that say main objective. Uh, currently, all of the all of the ministries have established let's say task forces, or uh, uh, not the task force, but ad hoc committees in in uh, in working in let's say coordinating all the ministries together in order for the um, uh, EU accession to be facilitated easier in the sense that. All the Albanian laws need to, to be transposed to the European laws. Uh, so when uh, we access on it, the, let's say, key is that the Albanian standard of living will increase and then we will go to Europe. But it's not, uh, let's say, that Europe, let's say, wants us to increase this. It's for us. And then in order for us to get, let's say, a better uh, standard by the rule of law, and then we can join the EU. But ultimately, uh, it is a... Um, uh, Thing that we have to do ourselves, and then go to the EU, so to say, if the EU is a place to go for.
0: And the country has already been an EU candidate since 2014, is that right?
1: Uh, a candidate in the sense that, um, uh, let's say, uh, you get a university exception,
2: uh-huh.
1: or let's say you apply for a university and they said, okay, you're a candidate and you can apply, but you still have to apply and get accepted. All
0: right that the
1: the, the application process takes a while and for us it has taken i don't know a lot of years and then during my tenure at the government we actually got the green light on opening the negotiations so we've been participating in uh, the pre-accession talks so to say hmm. so they're not accession talks but they're pre-accession talks and explanatory chapters in brussels to which i had the luck of representing the, the government for one chapter and then in those meetings, the European Commission explains to the government or to the governmental representatives as to what is going to happen on the chapter, like which are the laws that needs to be transposed first, uh, how the rules of the game are going to change once the uh, Albania joins the EU, uh, what is the needs, what are the priorities that need to be tackled first and all that. And then after uh, two thousand and nineteen, I think I wrote a paper about this. Um, we got, let's say, from we moved from 10 or 5 um, uh, key points that we need to accomplish before joining the EU to 14 and 215. And it is becoming to me like, uh, I have a historical joke about Woodrow Wilson's uh, 14 points on the, of, on the League of Nations in which uh, George Clemenceau says, um, uh, Mr. Wilson bores me with his 14 points. Even God requested 10 commandments. And then, you know, we are all breaking them. So in the sense that uh, they are increasing our uh, to-do list and then the people are getting uneasy as on whether or not this to-do list is quite important. Uh, But the majority of stuff in the to-do list is the establishment of the rule of law, uh, the establishment of independent, let's say courts, independent um, uh, prosecutors, and basically uh, tackle corrupt, of corruption and then um, uh, I think one uh, one important key is the trial, the high public officials that are, let's say, um, uh, corrupted or have been invisible funds or things like that.
0: Mm. But the reason I asked about EU is because it obviously has an impact on um, um, Albania's cooperation with the BRI, because when we talk about the EU standards and the politics, Definitely, that 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 has an impact, but we'll go back to that later. Speaking of Albania-China relations, um, they actually go way back because when China, the PRC, was established in 1949, Albania was already having close ties with the country. So, can you tell us more about um, how the relationship started and how it's developing at the at the moment?
1: Um- the thing is that um, Albania was one of the most hermetic countries during communism um, for about 50 years. Uh, we were quite close with the Soviet Union when uh, Stalin was in power. Um, our our uh, communist leader, or whatever, Ember Hoxha, uh, uh, traveled to, let's say, Soviet Russia about five to six times and produced many mo- memoirs and books of that of those meetings, uh, most most of which are, um, uh, let's say, uh, fairy tales. If you can compare, uh, let's say, the proceedings from the Soviet Union and the proceedings from Albania, you need to compare the papers. Uh, And then after the uh, death of Stalin and then after the uh, Soviet Union was, let's say, switched their policy into a more open one, and then the, uh, Albania started, uh, let's say, cl- collaborating with China as it was the only country that could provide technical support and, uh, and assistance. Uh, in that regard, uh, the Chinese and Albania relationship have been, have been ongoing for so many years, but they further deepened when uh, Albania, s- sponsored by the um, will of the Chinese, a uh, resolution in the UN, for the one china policy that you have now in removing the Republic of China, also known as Taiwan, to the Republic of China in the the, uh, United Nations. Uh, That ultimately led to Taiwan being expelled from the UN, a status that still holds today. Uh, You know, honestly, um, uh, I think, or I believe strongly that uh, we did not have a choice in regards to who we partnered with in back in the day. Uh, and due to this, uh, let's say, collaboration that we did with China and this uh, deal in the UN, we were able to receive, let's say, a lot of technical assistance uh, in regards to technology, education, um, uh, food production or whatsoever. And in that sense, we had many... Um, uh, Chinese experts and engineers coming here and helping us develop antennas and uh, radios and uh, broadcast tractors who were assembled in Albania and also there was an exchange program, meaning that a lot of uh, Albanian students were sent to China as students. The same thing was happening with russia uh, and then in order to get trained in China and brought back here to somewhat use that um, uh, use the skills learned in the Chinese uh, education system here in Albania. Uh, So that's that's how it has been for a while.
0: Well, that sounds similar to what some some of the things that are happening on the ground right now when we talk about the Belt and Road Initiative. Albania was actually a founding member of the 17 plus one framework of the Belt and Road initiative, and they further agreed to expand cooperation under the framework in 2017. So, but when we look at what's actually happening in terms of um, specific sectors, for example, if you look at the transportation sector, things have been uh, rocky, to say the least. Um, For example, when we look at the acquisition of concessionary rights of the Tirana International Airport by a Chinese joint venture led by China Everbright in 2016 um, and by concessionary rights, it it means you basically operate the airport and that comes with certain responsibilities, but um, the thing is, we have seen Repeated security failures in the airport, such as armed robberies since the acquisition. And it was considered that the Chinese company was responsible for that, but the Albanian government was um, not able to hold them into account, hold, hold them accountable. And that certainly did not please the general public. And eventually China Everbright sold its entire equity in the joint in, in the airport to a local Albanian group called Katsrati. So Yeno, can you tell us, what do you make of the whole saga?
1: Well, the transportation sector is actually one of the most important keys to our economy as we highly rely on it. Um, uh, We are seen as a bridge between East and West in the sense that let's say uh, the harbors that we operate or the roads or the airports are, let's say the driving factor to our economy. Uh, in regards to the uh, the airport concession, um, uh, it has actually been rocky for a while now. Not just not just on the um, uh, not just on the security side, but also let's say on the duty-free shops or or other legal rights mm. that the airport has. Um, uh, you know, the airport rents its shops and its spaces to, to companies and all that. Uh, most of them have been held due to let's say legal procedures or whatever. Uh, let's say, the, um, the Chinese company that was managing the airport, they actually um, had other people manage it for them, you know. Uh, and in that sense, um, we are used in a country that, if you don't have it well with the system, then the system uh, expels you, so, well, to say the least. And then this new venture by Castrati Group, it's not, let's say, new. Um, uh, they are somewhat built in the country. Uh, hmm. They have they have some of the most important, let's say, projects in the country in regards to infrastructure. So the new acquisition of a uh, huge, let's say, um, uh, portfolio by an Albanian company, it's not a surprise, meaning that they have been getting a lot of tenders and a lot of uh, money from the Albanian government in regards to their investments in um, uh, in the economy or in the infrastructure which is uh, quite shady if, if I am to say so. Uh, we even had, let's say, other foreign companies that have left the country because of the difficulties in conducting business mm. and then this is not good for the foreign direct investment or any other kind of investment because it doesn't produce trust. Uh, we had let's say, Sheraton, uh, the Sheraton Hotel, in hotel. Singapore that, is mm-hmm. this, that have been operating for many years. Uh, they've left a few years back, and then the company bought, let's say, the hotel where they used to um, operate from. So I feel this, this is like a trend of replacing, let's say, big companies with more small, controllable companies, I'd say. Uh, it's something that it's not really... Uh, nice in regards to the infrastructure development or the political development because it doesn't make us look trustworthy. And then the other thing in the the rocky part with the Chinese investment is the um, uh, the procurement from bankless petroleum from the GOJ in the southern right. of Albania. Uh, what is to be said about that region is that the region is very, very poor. Uh, despite having the the land that's produced oil, you'd think that some of the money that generates that would go for the local economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, instead most of the money is being let's say taken, uh, so to say, by the central government, and then uh, most of the taxes go to the central government instead of the local government. And then most of that money, or most of that money, or whatever is produced there, it doesn't spill over to the local population. What spills over to the local population is. That is the pollution caused by the by the raffineries despite let's say public um, uh, unsatisfaction with let's say the company or with the petroleum company uh, leaking uh, harmful materials in the water supplies or in the rivers or whatever uh, the government or the local government kind of uh, fails in, in keeping them in checks and balances, and fails in um, keeping them accountable according to law and according to let's say uh, legal procedures. Uh, and then there is this is a funny anecdote, which is quite true, but man, it's funny because it's true. Uh, and once every once every New Year, then this company or their directors, they just go with a uh, fifty dollars worth of groceries and they give it to these families and they say this is cor- corporate responsibility and we like to give back to the citizens. So they're, they're um, providing them with little baskets of food while they are uh, somewhat damaging their uh, agricultural sector. So it's a little bit um, um, hypocritical if you ask me. Uh, so in order for this investment from either Chinese companies or any other companies, Be successful. There needs to be a sort of mutual respect between the local the local communities, the government, and also the companies. Um, If 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 a country does not, let's say, impose checks and balances on the companies that operate in its own uh, territory, uh, then the population is going to be dissatisfied, and then uh, the climate of conducting business is not going to be healthy, to say the least.
0: So. Obviously, the central and local governments could um, do better to make the investment stake. But on the other side, do you think the Chinese companies have some lessons to learn from these failures?
1: Well, it's not just the Chinese companies that have lessons to learn. I think um, the lessons that I need to be learned here is that you, know, you should be very careful getting into business with a, um, uh, let's say a government or a country that does not have a good track. Hmm. Uh, in uh, uphelding investments, and this is one of the issues that we are let's say lacking foreign direct investment right now. All right, we don't have most of the investment that we have are from Turkey, some are from China, and then now we're getting let's say investments from the Arab world, such as the United Arab Emirates. Oh, uh, which which these are let's say to say countries that you know don't really want to operate within the legal spectrums of things,
0: Mm -hmm. and. Well, we've talked about the transport, transportation sector as well as the energy sector. And there is another sector which, is, which might be less controversial, which is the agricultural sector. And China has been keen to welcome more exports from um, Albania in this regard. For example, Premier Li Keqiang confirmed the op- abolition of any barriers to imports of honey wine and olive oil coming from Albania when he met the PM in 2019. But um, you've also told me the other day that there might be some um, problems regarding the exports by Albanian uh, Albania in terms of the regulations and the standards. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Um, uh, this is an interesting question. Uh- we do we do need to export more, let's say, agriculture? As agriculture and tourism are some of the key drivers of our, of our economy, as the transportation and the energy sector is quite lacking, to be honest. Uh, in regards to the agricultural sector, we do have, let's say, good produce. What we lack is standardization of control. Uh, and that being said, meaning that uh, there needs to be a tighter control, let's say, the farmers. Uh, in the farmers and what they produce and what they export. Uh, generally, uh, small, the majority of the farmers uh, operate, let's say, small businesses. And then there is this big, let's say, uh, conglomerate, I so to say, that they takes the produce and then, um, uh, let's say, makes olive oil or whatever. So uh, they're kind of little, little corporations that, that handle the, the, the production. The fault at this is that uh, there is a lack of standardization in government control in this regard. And then, since the government is quite bendy, uh, you could easily get the ISO, or you could easily get the certificate of approval uh, without, you know, without much effort. Uh, We've had issues in back in the day when we were exporting honey to countries like Saudi Arabia, or when we were exporting, let's say, livestock. Uh, such as sheep uh, or honey, and then in a the conversation that I had with um, uh, back in the day with uh, Saudi investors, uh, they were basically saying that the honey was really really good at first. They passed all the quality control and all that stuff, but then for some reason the people who were selling it or who were exporting it, they got greedy. Uh, so therefore they were they were inserting let's say shady practices like such as I don't know antibiotics or sugar or any other. Uh, effort or any other measure that is used to increase the production of honey. So by being, let's say, greedy or by wanting to produce more and increase the quantity, they, they lowered the quality and then that kind of um, um, made the investors to not procure honey anymore or any other uh, produce. Uh, so this is the uh, the issue. Um, there needs to be a tighter control and tighter security in regards to the. Um, uh, uh standardization of the of the produce whereas in regards to fruits and vegetables i think uh, they are they are quite okay as we export in europe as well however with uh honey and wine which need to be kept at let's say better standards there might be issues
0: so do um, do you think who is who is responsible for setting these standards so better regulate the market and could um, the EU accession change this? Because we know that EU has a very robust set of standards regarding produce. When they talk about Brexit, they said that the shape of the banana was also regulated under the EU rules. So w- would that be applicable here?
1: Actually, one of the good things about joining the EU, the EU is the compliance. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the government is hard to working hard or hardly working, uh, depending on how you see it, in regards to transpose all the laws and regulations to the EU, to comply with the EU, meaning that majority of our laws uh, that, that regulate agriculture, food, produce, or whatever, are set at uh, compliance with the EU. The problem is that we look good on paper, but we don't look good on uh, the field, so to say. Mm-hmm. So if you read if you read the papers and the laws and everything everything uh, we have signed all the important treaties, but the lack of uh, application thereof it's is uh, quite unsatisfactory. Uh, so it's not just a compliance is uh, let's say you you have written a law or you have written a book or whatever. But if you don't distribute that book, then nobody is going to know what you wrote and how you wrote it and uh, how it uh, helps future generations if they read this book. So in that, in that sense, it's the same with the law. So if you write the law and then you don't provide, let's say, uh, a good deliveral system in which everybody can understand and learn, a, learn from the law and learn the law, then it's going to be difficult to implement it. So this is one of the main issues, I believe, not just the compliance or the lack of a law.
0: Mm. Now, speaking in the bell and Road initiative in general, um, I'm sure it can not avoid from the geopolitical struggles. And we've talked about some regional um, problems, such as um, Albania's relationship with the Middle East and Turkey. Can you elaborate more on that? And can you maybe also talk about the Albania's relationship with the US, who mm. has been um, you know, on the opposite of the bench regarding um, the and Road Initiative?
1: Um, Well, Albania, it has always been on the uh, kind of the middle Uh, because as a young country, it wants to attract all the investment they can get, but on the other side, uh, it needs to somewhat um, decide who they're going to go with. In that in that sense, that the fact that we are still not a EU country, we have the opportunity to choose or to pick and choose. Uh, similar is being done with Serbia as well. Uh, they are, let's say, pro Russia or they have a big Russian support, but they also want to join the EU, and they are on the final stages of the EU accession. You know, uh, so they can we have the luck to pick and choose. Uh, in that in that regard, I'm. Uh, we are just, you know, getting what we can, um, which which is quite funny, so to say. Uh, in regards to the EU being on the opposite side of the bench, I think the le- the latest developments kind of show that Albania is somewhat orienting more to the EU uh, and to the US. But then again, the recent development, with the construction of the harbor endurance, which which is a tender or given to the um, I think the company that constructed Buj Khalifa and the company that is constructed Belgrade by the water in uh, Serbia, uh, kind of sets things in a different way. Uh, on the other hand, we've had a lot of big Turkish investment, uh, specifically before right before the elections. Uh, they promised a lot of vaccines, so they promised to build a hospital uh, and they promised to build an airport. Uh, in Lora, which didn't go the right way, so now an Albanian company or an Albanian from Kosovo that has been working in Russia and Kazakhstan a lot is planning to build it. So there is a lot of some um, odd things going on, so to say, Uh, so there is not a consistency in which you can draw uh, a line or there is no consistency in which you can draw, let's say, conclusions. Uh, so we're still adapting as we go in that in that regard. Mm. I don't know. I I spoke a lot. I don't know if I answered the question or if, or if I was understood well.
0: Well, but still, that's the pragmatic approach. When you're a small country, the best thing you can do is to try to be independent as possible and benefit from the opportunities coming from both sides. So now, finally, we ought to talk about the young people. And back in 2018 and 19, we have seen some student protests in Albania. Um, It started off as an opposition to the high tuition fees, but it ended up in a cabinet reshuffle. Can you tell us what is is it all about and what are the most pressing issues facing the youth in your country?
1: Well, the cabinet reshuffle, um, to be honest, they just changed the minister to a vice minister. In that regard, the policy that was fallen was the same or similar. Uh, so there was not much of a reshuffle in that in that regard. And then since the government is quite centralized, then the majority of the power rests with the prime minister. He appoints ministers and he appoints vice ministers. Uh, and a vice minister is somewhat a made-up role which in the government because it does not really it's not really specified well in the constitution. Uh, so the vice minister is usually an individual who is supposed to be leading a sort of uh, field of area of expertise in the ministry but um uh, more they usually um uh, they just handle some sort of diff- different decasters uh, and the vice ministers are very changeable mm. so so they don't create much of a um uh, fear in the public administration, uh, so that's, that's about the government reshuffle. Uh, but what the student brought all, protesting brought up is that, um, uh, you know, it was quite scary in the sense that they got up so fast and things escalated so quickly. But then again, uh, like, like every other protest that's been happening in the country, if you keep the track of it, you see that the government won almost all of them. One in the sense of negotiating power. So if you are in a protest, then you have a, uh, let's say, a protest control group, meaning the people who will negotiate for you in the government, has set your points, your 15 points or 10 points, or whatever, um, uh, whatever needs that you are trying to accomplish by this protest. And then you go to the government, and then you, let's say, try to negotiate this. But your negotiating power is way lower than all that of the government. And then usually through strong hand measures, the protests are usually um, uh, brought down. Similar thing happens to the protests in 2018 and 19. Uh, They said that, yeah, we are going to provide jobs and employment to young students who are excellent students, meaning that. They opened more than 600 government jobs to excellent students, uh, which is a good initiative, meaning that a lot of them got employed and a lot of them are really good students. But this is not the right way to go, saying, okay, you protest and I give you a job, and then you stop protesting. So it's kind of a blow to the students who are not, let's say, excellent students, meaning that not, not everybody can afford to get good grades in, a, in an uneven society in which the uh, lack of internet access or the, or the lack of access to education is not the same in the capital or in the other different districts of the country. Uh, so what's this? created is that um, uh, it kind of drove excellence, so to say, but then again the students who are not able to get an absolute 10, they are not able to, let's say, get a, get a, get a good job or be promoted. And it basically said, it basically brought this excellency kind of um, uh, idea is that if you work hard, then you'll get a job in the government. But then again, the job that you'll get in the government is kind of gonna, it's going to be mediocre to say the least uh, and then a lot of people believe that by working in the government they're going to be able to be rich or be powerful or whatever but then again there is a big ruling elite or often public administration that doesn't matter how hard you work it's still going to be where you started you know it's a bureaucracy it's very set to keep you where you are uh, so I don't think the student protests really changed much aside from uh, employment of a few of their peers and then uh, in regards to youth again the lack to education and the lack of employment after education is actually one of the biggest factors as well uh, for instance we have changed educational system a while back from a four-year high school to a three-year high school mm. and then from a four-year university to a three-year university plus two years of a master meaning that the students spent up until 23 or 25 years old in school, because after they finish university uh, with a three year bachelor's degree, they have little to no opportunities getting employed because there is an inflation on degrees. Everybody has a master's degree and everybody's getting a PhD. Uh, and most of those degrees are somewhat shady and plagiarized, but, but that's another issue. Uh, in regards to the education, uh, most of the students who graduate, they have a master's degree and they have no job experience. And now the majority of them, they do not want to work in, let's say, uh, meaningless jobs because they have a college degree, but they have no experience. So in that sense, the high level of education is somewhat decreasing unemployment because if you're a student, you're technically employed and you're a student. But then again, with this new education, that they're getting, uh, it's still pushing the um, uh, the unemployment rate just one year and the other year and the other year. So there is a big bubble of, let's say, of inflation in regards to the diplomas and in regards to the needs of the country. So the diplomas that they get or the degrees that they have do not directly correspond to the needs of the economy. Because and there is no standardized regulation. for them.
0: And in that regard, um, in terms of education and job opportunities, could the Belt and Road in- Initiative provide a little help to the young people in terms of education and exchange programs, maybe?
1: Uh, Well, to be honest, um, I haven't really seen what the government plans on getting from the Belt and Road Initiative. Even in 2017, when the ambassador of Albania in China signed the memorandum or contract called it what you want, yeah. Uh, when I was there, I uh, I wrote to the ambassador and I asked specifically like, what does Albania seek to get from this agreement? Uh, uh, but there was no response from him or from the uh, from the ambas- from, from the embassy. Uh, and then again, the majority of Albanians don't really know about this Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, so there is no public discourse in the country regarding it. And I, as a researcher, that have been working on this, I've been researching it and wrote a book chapter on it, I have no idea what the government expects, I can just only speculate. So in regards to the opportunities that will offer young students, it's highly doubtful since um, uh, the majority of Chinese, let's say foreign direct investments, let's say comes into construction and or um, uh, raw material industries. Uh, such as mining and all that stuff. And then the spillover that will leave to the local uh, population, it will just be uh, uh, short-term labor or labor-intensive jobs, such as digging and trenching or whatever. In regards to the youth, I highly doubt that it it will have any uh, impact um, whatsoever.
0: Uh, Yeah. So there isn't a lot like you who has... Spend time in Asia and China? I mean, did you, did you so you, you just took the initiative and plan on say, oh, I want to go to study, take a th- semester in Korea and China, and you didn't really get a lot of help from the authorities?
1: Um, <clears throat> actually, there are a few scholarships offered by the Asian universities. So to say there is the next scholarship from Japan, that's a TGSP scholarship from Korea, and then there is a single governmental scholarship from China, uh, in which they offer, let's say, to developing countries one or two scholarship places per year Mm. in order to start the other bachelor, master's, or PhD in these countries. Uh, In that regard, uh, a lot of the students that I know who have been traveling to Asia have... um, uh, have gotten one of these scholarships. However, uh, it's just the number of the people who have applied to the scholarship is very low. Oh. Uh, and then the number of the scholarships is limited. Whereas my role, my role, my route to, let's say, Asia was different. I was studying in the US back in the day, and then I got offered an exchange semester from a Korean, a Korean university mm. to study there. So my path was somewhat different than. than uh, uh, an Albanian that lives in Albania would have taken, uh, and since the majority of Albanians are focused on either going to Europe for their exchange or their universities, uh, since you know Europe is closer and uh, the government kind of recognizes better the European and the American university diplomas, the uh, the young students don't necessarily turn their eyes back onto the uh, East, so to say. Mm. so in that regard if Belt and Road in the future would provide let's say more study scholarships with the help of the government or the universities in China as I said there is a top 10 universities in China which are at the highest uh, the times higher education ranking uh, would provide let's say scholarships then I guess um, with soft power provided by education the youth might be able to let's say contribute more and foster better relationships but as it is, uh, it's quite difficult.
0: Right, because as far as I know, there, there has been some academies in China, especially in Peking U or the Tsinghua University, which are catered or tailored for students from um, the Bell and Road countries. So I'm sure they are welcoming. But the problem may lie in how you promote the programs and provide incentives for the st- students to come. So that's definitely more work to do. Now mm. before. Hmm. Yep, please. I was going to say that in
1: regard to the, the most of these universities that have tailored that scholarship, not just the Belt and Road countries because it's still new, but to the Silk Road countries, which is different thing. Right. So it's not Belt and Road countries, it's the Silk Road countries. Right. Uh, similar, similar is with um, Chinese universities and also with the Korean universities hmm. so they, that they offer scholarships, let's say, to the Korean diaspora in the Central Asia. So they're mostly targeted to their um, uh, areas of influence back in the day.
0: Right. Now, before we leave, Yetno, you know, can you have? Can you provide us some general recommendations on how the Belt and Road can move forward, and what's your prediction on what's going to happen between Albania and China?
1: Oh, this is tough. I mean, I mentioned a little bit of on it. In my earlier points in regards to the future um, uh, roads, so to say, um, uh, and since there is a lack of information being provided by both governments, either the Chinese embassy here or the Albanian government here or the Albanian embassy in China, then it's difficult for the public to somewhat understand what is going on. Hmm. Uh, if there is no public perception in this regard or no positive public perception in regards to China, then I think it's going to be, well, there's not going to be a future whatsoever. Uh, although China is trying so hard with this uh, soft power diplomacy to somewhat influence the countries uh, by either offering, let's say, money or uh, investment uh, or um, skills, um, I think the some of the practices of the FDI that's being conducted uh, has, let's say, left the countries in
0: debt. Well, I have a figure here. Um, Between 2016 and 2019, the number of stories related to the BRI published in Albanian media jumped from 42 to 194. But that's 194, that's still still far too few, right? Yeah.
1: and then the majority of the stories that are published are somewhat let's say vanilla vanilla stories meaning that they don't really show the entire picture they just mention small specifics yeah uh, i've read many of them when i was doing my research and i read and i actually participated in 2019 in a uh, 17 plus 1 capital uh, cities that gathered in tirana in order to hold a conference on uh, on this on this regard, I think the representatives from the uh, Chinese uh, cities were participating. I think it was Beijing, and also the Albanian uh, mayor of Tirana participated mm-hmm. in, in events held in Beijing as well. But honestly, the, I don't have much information about the proceedings of this meeting or what happened or what was it for. Uh, it, it it less A big question mark, as I participated in the initial event, but then again, uh, I didn't even know what to expect and what was going to happen and what was the follow up of of this. But then again, uh, we've had quite some hindrances in the economy because of an earthquake in 2019, also the coronavirus and this and that, which might have somewhat halted the uh, the development of let's say projects or other things. Uh, which is one of the reasons why there is not much, let's say, public opinion regarding the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, but so far, so far, I I don't know much. I'll be honest on that. And I don't want to just make assumptions.
0: Mm. Well, thank you very much for your insights today. Um, Albania is on the top of my bucket list, so I hope to see you there soon.
1: Well, thank you, and we'll keep in touch.
0: Thanks, Edno.